hello everyone i'm aileen and i'm sarah and welcome to the stuff that matters a podcast brought to you by equate scotland equate scotland support women in stem so that's science technology engineering and mass during this period of social distancing and home working we want to stay connected to our community of women in stem as such we thought the best way to do that would be to speak to incredible women working in stem with the help of the Royal Society of Edinburgh, we have interviewed eight women to discuss the things that affect our everyday life and talk about how their work is literally changing the world that we live in. Hence the title, The Stuff That Matters. Join us to hear about the science behind heavy periods, how sharks are part of the global effort to find a vaccination to COVID-19, and how technology is advancing dementia care. We hope you enjoy listening to the science behind the stuff that really matters as much as we did. Here we go. Pooja Jane is the co-founder of Cogni Health, a company that aims to transform the experience of people living with dementia, both patients and their carers. The app was developed following a conversation with a man who cared for his wife suffering with Alzheimer's disease and aims to support families to identify what type of support currently exists. Pooja has a degree in biomedical sciences and a master's degree in integrative neuroscience from the University of Edinburgh. She also has hands-on experience working as a professional carer. In 2018, Pooja was listed as one of the top 20 women to watch out for in Scotland by Business Insider and is a former Royal Society of Edinburgh Unlocking Ambition Enterprise Fellow. So welcome Pooja, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, thank you for having me. Um, so I'm just going to dive straight into uh, questions because I'm really interested to find out more about Cogni Health. Um, so our first question is, can you tell us a bit about your STEM journey and how you um, got to becoming the co-founder of Cogni Health? Yeah, of course. Um, so my interest in dementia was originally a purely scientific one. Um, I chose to study neuroscience at the University of Edinburgh and I, I was fascinated by the mechanisms that underline brain diseases. But while I was studying, um, I had a really little understanding of what it actually meant to live with dementia. So very different from researching it in a lab versus the real life experiences of, of people um, living with this condition. Now, about three years ago, that sort of changed when I attended a neuroscience conference in Edinburgh. And, and kind of in the midst of all of these scientists sharing their research, um, I had an interesting conversation with a gentleman named Fred. So his wife had been recently diagnosed with Alzheimer's and he was sharing with me how um, him and his wife used to go for their weekly shops. And then this one weekend when they were um, about to go, she kind of refused to get into the car. And it was the space underneath the dashboard where we kind of keep our feet, um, which made her feel really uncomfortable, the darkness, the, the blackness of the, the, whole, the place underneath the dashboard. Um, so she found it that it was unknown and unsettling, um, but Fred knew how important it was for her to go out and do the things that she normally did. And he didn't want the disease to take that away from her. So he kind of took this problem apart and he put his engineering mind to use until he had one of these like elusive light bulb moments and he got her, um, he got his wife to sit in the car, but with her body facing him and her feet outside the car. And then he just swung her um, feet into the car while he was talking to her and making her laugh, kind of distracting her from, from this, this darkness um, um, hole underneath the, the dashboard. And um, it was really interesting because we get into the car feet first. All she needed to do was sit first and then kind of have her, her legs swung into the car. And it was such a simple solution, yet it was going to make all the difference. It meant that she could still um, 
maintain her independence, go shopping and do the things that she, she used to do and, and loved. Um, and Fred highlighted how so many people um, are in his situation really struggling um, with the lack of post-diagnostic support, not really knowing where to go, what to do. And, um, you know, he's creative and can come up with these solutions, but not everyone is able to do that and are in, in a much more stressful um, environment. And so that was kind of my first flavor of what it was or what it meant to actually live with dementia, hearing his story and his experience. Um, and soon after that, my grandfather got diagnosed with vascular dementia. So it came kind of both um, this interest of, of working on cognitive health came both from my professional experience, um, but also from my personal one. And um, kind of just going into a little bit about dementia, it, it takes many forms and Alzheimer's is the most common one. But in one form or another, it affects about 850,000 people in UK alone. Um, probably the numbers are about to a million now, um, but there are about 700,000 family carers who are looking after them. Now, these families um, face an enormous financial burden when it comes to dementia care. They're left footing about a 5.8 billion pound bill for their care needs. So like from providing part-time support um, of washing and dressing to actually having to leave their jobs and becoming full-time carers. Um, and so while it's a major problem today, it, it's going to definitely be a bigger problem tomorrow. And especially with the pandemic, we can see how big of a problem um, it really is. And so when I had left that conference, um, I, I was kind of looking to use my scientific background um, to help people like Fred. I just didn't know how. And that's kind of where my professional care journey started, where I wanted to really understand the relationship um, between dementia and families and how that evolves and what are their needs. Um, and, and around that time, I also worked with my two co-founders, Pranav and Julia, to kind of come together and, and create a solution that can address some of the, the challenges that these family members were facing. Um, and so we created basically an app called Cognicare, and essentially it's aimed to be a digital companion for family carers who are looking after someone with dementia at home. And the two kind of key features of our solution um, that we wanted was one that is personalized because each family has such different experiences with the condition um, and the way that it progresses. We wanted to have a way where we could understand each user, each care and their situation to then suggest kind of personalized and tailored advice for them. And then the second kind of aspect is we realized they were struggling to navigate the health and care um, system. And so having kind of all aspects of dementia care in one platform was really key. So the app kind of covers all information about understanding dementia and its symptoms to um, financial and legal matters, therapies, supporting the care um, where they look after themselves, um, having dementia friendly events and meetups in their community. So really um, kind of making it as, as an enabler um, to support professional and family carers to spend a bit more quality time and, and, uh, and empower them to know what um, they can do and what are, what are their options essentially. So where do you guys get the information? Because that's, it's so vast in terms of from you're talking about legal to also kind of medical. How do you, where do you guys get your sources and how do you put that all together? 
Yeah, so one of the kind of um, major decisions we decided is that it won't be a medical app. So we would look, concentrate on um, providing information that um, it, it doesn't kind of overlap with, with the decisions that GPs make. So a lot of the information comes from research papers. Um, and and we, one of the, the struggles that I had before was realizing how people won't, won't spend time reading research papers. A lot of them don't have a biology background. So how can we extract the information that researchers are spending so long um, finding out how do we make that um, visible to the public in a way that they can actually use this information and, and incorporate that incorporate this into their daily lives. So part of it does come from resources on PubMed and, and kind of all these findings. Um, and then part comes from our experiences with CARES as we speak to them. They're actually the ones with with a lot of knowledge. What we're doing is basically democratizing information where we're using solutions that carers come up with, but being able to share this with a lot more carers because they'll probably be facing similar um, problems. And finally, charities. I think charities is a great resource of information. They have a wealth of experience as well. And kind of being able to incorporate all these three different types of information in one concise blog and one concise tips so that it's, it's easy to understand. They can pick up the main points and actually be able to do something about their, their challenge at home. Um, so the other question we kind of have is Alzheimer's Research UK reported that 61% of dementia patients are women and in the UK women are 60 times more likely to develop Alzheimer's disease than breast cancer. Can you tell us uh, a little bit about why women are more affected by dementia and Alzheimer's than men? Yeah, so the reasoning that's been around for the longest is that women live longer than men and age is a, is a risk factor of dementia. Um, a person's risk of developing dementia rises from 1 in 14 over the age of 65 to 1 in 6 over the age of 80. So you can see the vast difference in, in, in influence of age. But age is a risk factor. It's not the cause of dementia. And there are other factors that contribute to the onset of dementia. So while you know, it is true that women live longer and therefore age is a risk factor, there are other factors that we need to start considering and research is kind of highlighting. So um, I'll, I'll speak about them individually, but broadly it's on genetics, bio or biological um, differences and, and some social factors as well. So um, starting with genetics, there's a gene called APOE4, which is associated with a higher risk of Alzheimer's. And um, women carrying these genes, uh, or this gene tends to develop Alzheimer's disease than men carrying the same gene. Um, so so from, a brain, from brain scans, it tells us that the rate of brain cells that die for a woman is faster than in men. And there's a protein called tau, which is a, um, which is linked with Alzheimer's and it spreads more rapidly in women's brains than men. Again, these are kind of, not a lot of research has been done into sex differences and, and, and the risk of dementia being more in women than men, but um, just kind of surface level findings is what I'm trying to share. Um, biologically, so, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, can I ask a question? Yeah. So does, does that mean eventually we may be able to find out if you have a gene um, that may predict that you might have Alzheimer's later in your life. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah you can you can find out kind of um, by doing um, by understanding what genes that you carry. There are some like APOE4 that uh, you that is an indicator of a higher risk of the onset of dementia. Yeah, 
Um, and then biologically, changes in reproductive health have been li linked to dementia as well. So this one study did risk profiles of women with different number of um, kids, miscarriages, and then their age that they got their first period. And all of and, and they saw these kind of changes between more number of kids to the um, to influencing the likelihood of dementia. Again, not too much work has been done, but there are some links there. And then the other is depression. So depression is linked to dementia, and women are two times more likely to be depressed than men. So again, um, we're looking at other factors that are linked to dementia and how women have that relationship with those factors. Um, and I think finally, women as carers, which is so relevant to what we're speaking about today, that they um, mostly are women who uh, care for someone with dementia, and they carry a higher burden and stress and all of that. And, and studies have shown that spousal carers may be at a higher risk for dementia than non-carers. So you touched on just there about the gender divide in caring. So one of our questions is actually about the demographics of the um, users of your product and uh, what the main carers are or um, supporting people with dementia are. Yeah, so just kind of setting the, the background, um, care is typically provided by family members, often it's daughters or daughter-in-laws at home, and about 60 to 70 percent of carers of people with dementia are women. So in many countries and cultures, women take on the role as a carer for their spouse or an elderly relative in the family. Um, and we see this statistic mirror our user base as well, majority of them are women. Um, and the challenges that they face are many of these women fall in this sandwich generation where they are, um, you know, they have their job, they have to look after their kids, and they have an elder parent to look after as well. Um, and and basically they're juggling between these three things. And over time, as the disease progresses, they go from a full-time job to a part-time job, to leaving their jobs and becoming full-time carers. And that's one of the major challenges that they face. Um, and then second is kind of, that is specific to them is, is visibility and their voices just to be heard because they go through unbelievable amount of stress and pressure. And I'm not sure how much of their voice is, is used to drive you know, policies, um, to drive this type of support that they require and, and how much do they actually get access to it. So I think those two are major themes that are specific to women um, that we see. What are, I mean, can you kind of, you were talking about like the different strands that you have on your app, but like of the kind of pages that they go on the most, what are, the, what are those? And so uh, I think the two major kind of used features within CogniCare is one, the resources. I think they we've had really good feedback about it being categorized in a way that's easy to understand. So for them to navigate into, this is my problem. Um, and then this is where I can look for it and get information that's easy to read, understand, and then actually practically use. So that's one part of it. And they're able to search for question, questions as well. So just like you would on Google, but without kind of going into a rabbit hole of not knowing what's actually um, right and wrong and what do I actually use. So we would give actual like two blogs or two pieces of advice and they actually have an answer immediately when they need it. Um, so that, that's the information part of it. Um, and then the second is the community aspect of it, being able to find um, things that are happening in their community that they didn't know about. So again, kind of using the platform to reconnect them to their community, to, to places of support, um, to you know, documenting what's happening in their life and being able to share that. So I think that that's the second kind of piece of value um, our users benefit from. And so our next question is, before COVID-19 took hold in the UK, the conversation was very much focused around health and technology. 
uh, with even talk of robots delivering caring needs, now we have a collective national appreciation for workers in health in the healthcare sector, um, such as carers. Do you think the conversation is going to change? Um, so I think before we talk about technology in itself in this context, um, I want to talk about one of the major impacts of coronavirus, which is social recession. Um, social isolation is particularly hard on populations that are most vulnerable to isolation and loneliness. And this has been there before coronavirus is just highlighted even more today, which is older adults with disabilities, um, pre-existing health conditions, mental health issues, and, and dementia is, is part of that list. And so um, talking about this is so important when we speak about technologies because we need to reassess um, the role of technology in our life. And in the case of this health and social care system, we need to understand where does technology fit so that it solves problems where it strengthens human connections. Because it, yes, technology has been there for a really long time. The way that it's adopted um, has has been is changing, but really it's about where 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 does it come, where does it fit? really where where is it truly um, benefiting people so i'll give us a simple example um, we've seen that social care sector didn't really embrace technology for a really long time compared to other sectors like retail and finance they're like miles ahead um, it's been slow it's been cautious and, and and i get that but since the lockdown we've seen this adoption of um, video conferencing you know it's been around for a while zoom Teams, skype it's primarily been used in the professional setting but it's now used by carers to join virtual meetups um, where they spend time with each other and have a cup of tea. Um, and it's wonderful to see that. And, and it's because we, we don't have the ability to meet up in cafes anymore and have a cup of coffee or tea. Um, but if video conferencing as a tool was suggested as a complementary solution to physical meetups before coronavirus came into our lives, I think um, people wouldn't have accepted it in the same way they are now, both by organizations who have um, initiated this kind of um, um, initiative, but also by the families and by the communities. So I'm, I'm hoping and seeing, hoping to see that as we come out of the lockdown, that once we can start physically going back into those social interactions, that people still have that virtual option of meeting because it's for those who can't meet on a weekly basis or for that week they may not be able to, they still have the option to um, have that social connection. And, and more and more we realize how important those connections truly are. Um, so conversations around technology and healthcare, I think it's really not about the technology or the complexity about it. It's about our mindsets and, and how we adopt it. Um, I guess like another example is telemedicine. So the concept, again, my dad worked on this piece of technology about 10, 15 years ago, but it had really low penetration in the market. And now you can see that it's so widely used from um, mental health issues to really everything. And the way, you know, um, coronavirus has pushed our adoption of technology, both by communities and the NHS is massive. I mean, there are platforms that match volunteers to people who need care. Um, it could be simple as needing to walk their dog and there are people who can know that this is a problem and say, I wanna volunteer and will enable that to um, having groceries online for people who maybe physically can't you know, get their groceries, but it still gives them a sense of independence that they're selecting what they want to eat, they're buying their groceries, it comes to their door, and they're kind of been pushed into actually this is an option that is really beneficial. And while actually going to the grocery stop shops is, is a way to talk to the customers or talk to other people, I think if that's not an option, it's a good alternative. And then people are now starting to see that. And, and NHS, of course, I mean, people have said that, you know, the 
the change, the rapid change in two years has happened in two weeks, kind of that that's kind of the timescales people are talking about. Um, so I think that coronavirus is changing conversations. It is changing the way that we look at technology and, and hopefully the how much we've adapted and how much we are, what, how we look at technology. I hope that remains after we kind of come out of lockdown as well. Um, and I think one last point before um, I end kind of this question is I've given a lot of examples of technology that's been around for a while. So video conferencing tools, telemedicine, and all of that. Um, but one kind of product that's been around and has been quite controversial is robots. And, and that's, that was part of your question. And hopefully this will kind of loop back into um, where I started. So people have a strong opinion on this. Um, and, and it's fair enough because we're talking about social care sector. It's, it's primarily driven by personal care. It's um, those actually needing human interactions. And so when you start talking about robots overtaking that, loneliness and all of these other topics start to come up being like, those will increase if you have robots to take over this. Um, but actually, if we start talking about physical tasks, so robots that are um, doing these tasks that give family carers and professional carers more time, more quality time to spend with each other, to have those quality conversations, to do activities together, and less about the the actual physical task, then we're coming to a conversation where maybe the robots do have a role um, to do certain tasks where it allows people to connect with people and, and gives maybe a better type of care to, to the people who need it. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's my take on, on robots, just to kind of end the, end the question. Is there something you wish that that's not there that you think would be great in terms of, of kind of linking technology with health that you think would be particularly beneficial for for people with dementia or something that links in with um, with your platform? Um, I think one of the challenges is because it's interoperability is an issue, right? So we have independent products that private organizations um, are creating and um, there are some inherent problems with that as well um, with, you know, you what you would want um, product developers and, and designers to truly understand the situation and bring the people who are involved in the problem into the product design. And um, I know that's kind of deviation from what you've asked, but um, if you have carers or people with dementia actually influencing your product, I think that's really important. Um, for example, like GPS trackers, you know, it's great because they, if they wander, you can know where they are, but if they can't remember to put it on, you have a fundamental problem with it. So how can you use the same technology in a way where it can, you know, truly be applicable in that situation? So sometimes people don't think about that and, and it's no one's fault, but I think it's, it's when you don't put the people or bring the people who are having the problem at the center of developing that product. But let's say the product is developed and it, it's, it's, um, it, it's right for the user. Now it's about how do you connect that with NHS um, systems or with healthcare professionals? And I think, you know, that question has been up like, talked about for such a long time and no one still seems to have a solution and how do you connect all of this together because of um, just kind of the way NHS has been built and, and the systems are very different to what is being created so, and then the, the pipeline of how do you get your product into the NHS system is, is um, can be quite difficult, especially for a small startup like ours. So, um, you know, having to validate it, prove that it's truly beneficial, and then go through that pipeline of being integrated into the system takes a lot of resources, um, which initially startups don't have. 
Um, so I think, I hope that answered your question. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it does. And it kind of links into another one, which is you're basically an entrepreneur. You've started this, your, your own company. Do you have any tips that you would offer to other women who are interested in, in kind of potentially starting something up? Um, yeah, just go for it. I think, you know, um, when people talk about women in workplace or women with raising investment, the numbers are always low. Um, but there's, I think if you believe in, in the idea, if you have a passion for it, um, I think that will keep you going and, and overcoming kind of the roadblocks or challenges that you come along the way, whether it's related to you being a woman or not. I think it, it's where the, the motivation, the reasoning for why you want to do what you want to do, if that's strong enough, I think you should just go for it. I think it's also really, yeah, that translation, I think that you're talking about of translating things that maybe seem very complicated for someone who doesn't have a science background. And it's kind of been a theme, I think, in, in most of the conversations we've had in this series of how do we make this amazing knowledge understandable for, for someone who doesn't have a degree in bioscience or, or in um, neuroscience. And so I think that's something that kind of resonates as well as I think listening to, I think that's another thing that we sometimes forget is to listen to the actual users. And, and, and we talk about this all the time in terms of diversity. And I love the fact that you guys are actually considering your users. I think that's, it, it speaks volumes. And, and kind of on the flip side of it, one of the things I didn't mention was um, the users are helping us with research, right? So you have clinical studies where you have a lot of cares and people with dementia coming in and supporting research, but a lot of the time that can be quite difficult and they don't seem to get a lot back from it. There's this kind of, they're doing it for, because they want to progress science and, and doing it for the greater good, which is amazing. But one of the challenges, um, I found that as a challenge where can we use our platform to um, understand what cares are going through, things that are happening in the homes, the data that's not really collected or things that are not understood behind closed doors to progress science. So if we can start um, looking at some of the challenges that they have when they have it, um, of course, all this data is anonymized and, and, and we're we're very transparent in the way that we use this, but can we start then understanding a bit more about the condition itself? Because we're so far from really understanding the complexity that is dementia and, and then the diseases that come along with it. So um, I think this gives us an opportunity to start looking at data and, and start asking the questions that we still have um, not answered in, in the research world yet. And, and I'm sorry, I'm gonna ask another question because this seems to be the theme. Um, how much research is there behind? Is there a lot of funding in terms of researching dementia or is it one of those illnesses that doesn't have that backing? Does there need to be more funding? Is that one of the, the primary issues and on that lack of knowledge? Um, I think, um, I mean, there's uh, several reasons for it. I think there, we've come a long way since um, where we started and how much we know, of course, um, both about the brain and then what goes wrong and the characteristics about the condition itself. Um, there is funding. Um, I, there are other conditions like cancer and diabetes that have you know, significantly more. And it's not that one is, you know, more important than the other. It's just, um, it's, it's more kind of like, funnily enough, a trend, you know, w just like any other sector, what's, what's the trend in research right now? And dementia is kind of now getting that attention that cancer used to have. And I think it partly is related to stigma, partly related to the more that we know about it. Um, and, and so I think sometimes it's, it's t that funding is tied to, you know, that kind of aspect of it. Um, and I think uh, finally, it's, it's about some of the drug trials that have failed um, and, and it's by big organizations like Roche and, you know, um, Lilly. And, and it's just um, having those failures can sometimes make it difficult for pharmas to invest more money into dementia because they've already had such a big clinical trial. They spent millions of pounds on it and it, it didn't work. You're a scientist, but I'm sure 
having co-founded uh, Cocking Health, you spend a lot of time doing things that aren't STEM related. Yeah, um, honestly, I, w I went from <laughs> just being a researcher to like be and, and wanting to just develop this one product to realizing there's so much <laughs> more to to actually have um, running a business. So, you know, you have the the marketing, the sales, the, the, the sustainability, the financial aspect of it, the, the branding. Um, there's just so many different parts of 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 a business and, and I didn't know any of it to start with. And there's programs like the RSC fellowship, like um, the wire accelerator that have provided kind of the knowledge of um, understanding those business aspects that I didn't have beforehand. So a lot of my time initially was, was very much about trying to learn um, as much as I can about how do you even start a business and how do you what are the things you need to consider and each day is kind of a learning thing it's, it's, it's learning okay what do I want to do okay now I know what I want to do how do I do it again you're, you're, you're learning how do I even go about doing that and then actually doing it so it's a three-step process it's not just okay this is what I'm in you know I know what I want to do and I'm, I know how to do it there's just a lot that goes behind every little thing um, and so my days are varied from um, from those different aspects of the business. And, and of course, um, being able to work with a team that's that's amazing. And, and I have my um, father in India who, who helps with the tech work. And um, so my time is kind of split between both um, kind of outward facing towards developing partnerships with charities and other organizations and having that exposure and, and meeting amazing people like um, who, who run these charities to speaking to carers and, and influencing product development to the research aspect of it as well. Um, so yeah, it, it's a lot of different things. <laughs> and um, final question, where do you wanna see uh, Cogni Health go? What's the long-term objective? Um, so our vision is we started with dementia because it's close to our hearts. It's something that we have um, knowledge in to start with. But we see that this model or this backbone model, once we, we prove it in dementia, that it is beneficial, it is making a difference to these families. We want to see if we can um, apply this to different conditions. So apply it where there is still no cure for those conditions, just like dementia. Um, and care is a key component of it and, and being able to adopt this model across different conditions. Perfect. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure talking to you and listening and learning. I feel like I, I want to keep on reading more. I didn't realize so much about, about dementia, but also the applications that, that you guys are doing that are helping carers. No, thank you. <laughs>